Welcome into another edition of the Dana and Victory podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. I am Rick, and for this edition of the podcast, I am joined by the legend, Brian Snow. Brian, no March Madness. We are all under quarantine. The season is over, and uh, I guess all we have left is to break that down at this point. Yeah, th- this would be the Corona edition of the uh, of the Dana and Victory podcast without Dan. It uh, certainly is. We hope this podcast finds you all well. Obviously, uh, some weird times we're all going through, uh, but for hopefully, hopefully for an hour or so, we can entertain you and distract you. So let's jump into it. Xavier finished nineteen and thirteen overall on the year, eight and ten in Big East play. Um, for for some reason, Brian, it feels like we're kind of in the same spot we were in at the end of last year, and and basically, the season was a disappointment once again. Why? Why do you think that was? What happened this year? Well, I'll say last year, I think the team kind of achieved to its level. It just wasn't very good. This year, it's safe to say, it was disappointing. And I think it just came out down to this group of guys just didn't work together. We, we've talked about it with, you know, Edmund Subner and Trayvon Blewett. Like, it just didn't work. And then when Edmund unfortunately got hurt, you know, Xavier got better. And I think there was some of I can't point exactly why that was the case then. Now you have kind of guys who are very similar in that they're not the best feel for the game guys, not the highest IQ for the game guys, not a lot of great shooting out there. And it just didn't work at all with this, you know, core group of guys. And the results were what they were, especially when Paul Scruggs went out with an injury. And they were clearly not the same team without him because defensively what happened was you go from Paul Scruggs, who's an above average to good defender. And then the replacement level on it was Quinton Gooden, who was well, well below average, who graded out very poorly. And Kiki Tandy, who was probably the worst defender on the team. So you went from a really good defensive team to a really average one. And it showed in the fact that they couldn't get stops. Yeah, essentially, I mean, we've, talked about this before it's not the first time it's been brought up but this was like watching a Mick Cronin coached basketball team and and it was like the only difference was Mick Cronin had committed to that style for years and years and had developed everything around it to be made for winning in that one way which was to out tough you to out defend you and um, to keep it low scoring Xavier basically had to do that, but they didn't have that infrastructure, that system in place. And I think you saw why we always talk about you'd rather go down with good offense as opposed to good defense because it really limits the ways you can win a game. And Xavier just had very, uh, very little wiggle room the last two years and a slim margin for error. I mean, even with Paul Scruggs, I think it'd be hard to argue they were anything better than sixth or seventh best team in the Big East this year. I, I think, you know, Creighton. I mean, there, there's a large enough sample size to indicate that's absolutely the, the point. Yeah, you know? Creighton, Marquette, Villanova, Butler, and Seton Hall, I think we're all obviously better than them. And then, um, you know, you basically decide between them or Providence for that next spot. And I think they were better than DePaul, St. John's, and Georgetown. I think that was pretty much proven out over the, the course of the season. Um Brian, when you know, everyone expected this to be a big year for Xavier, when back when Paul Scruggs, Najee Marshall, Elias Harden, and Jared Ritter committed back in that 2017 class, what went wrong along the way that led us to this point where the roster just 
it didn't get to the point people expected it to be at by this time. I mean, I think the biggest thing was is Elias Harden and Jared Riveter just proved not to be good enough. And it's not that they needed to be good. They just needed to be good enough because you needed that extra shooting out there with those guys, and that didn't come. And then the other thing is, is unfortunately, Quentin Gooden fell into a hole he couldn't get out of. Let's call it what it is. He fell into a hole he couldn't get out of, and Paul Scruggs is not a point guard. So you were lacking point guard play and lacking shooting, and that's just a horrendous combination. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, you know, last year you could have had Kaiser Gates for another season had he not left early. Yeah, um, but after that, they go to the tournament with Kaiser Gates, right? And I, I think that you know I underestimated personally the impact he would have had on, on last year's team. Going into this year, though, regardless, you wouldn't have had them, and we had seen this coming in terms of the the lack of shooter being on the roster coming really since that class because Jared Ritter was supposed to be that guy. He never even plays a game in his Avery uniform. Elias Harden doesn't develop into that player. you know. And then since then, it's just been a whiff in terms of recruiting as you went through this transition. And that's understandable to a certain extent, obviously. The grad transfer route didn't work out. Um, Wellage could shoot, but just wasn't a good enough player. The other guys they've tried to get, like Caslin, Bryce Moore, just, just haven't quite been good enough players or shooters uh, to make an impact at the Big East level. So... Yeah, I mean, it just really was the the lack of being able to add a shooter slash skilled high IQ offensive players to backfill that roster once JP McCure and Trayvon Blewett left. It was really the issue for the for this program, and it's not like it wasn't something the staff knew. It was something they were trying to rectify, but that's part of college basketball. That's the game right there. Is it's hard to fit all the puzzle pieces together the right way, even when you know what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. It just so happened all their whiffs came at the same, not at the same position, but with the same role. You know, if as odd as this is to say, if Najee Marshall would have been a whiff, that would have been better than if Jared than Jared Ritter being a whiff, because then your your roster's still balanced. It's got shooters, it's got guys who can play different positions, guys who have different strengths and weaknesses, like. Instead, you had all your guys who are good players kind of would score at the same place and or had the same glaring weakness. And that's just not not a good way to do business. And especially, you know, if this team were in last year's Big East, they'd probably go 11-7 and and they're safely in the tournament. But this year's Big East being better. It just was what it was, and they weren't good enough. With the, the, whether it was the team, the players, the coaching, the any, the scheme, whatever you want to call it, they just were not good enough to be better than a 500 team. And when you're when you're playing with fire as a 500 team, and, and I mean in conference, obviously they were well above 500 for the regular season. Then a 25 footer with one second left can determine a good season, bad season. Yeah, and I think, and you know, maybe that's what we'll learn about this staff as we continue is their ability to to motivate and um, get their leaders to step up and and have the team playing at its best. But I think one thing that we may have learned about this group of upperclassmen too, whether it be your your seniors with Tyreek and and Quentin and and 
granted, Tyreek had a great season. I think most people would argue he's the guy that really did kind of step up and try to put the team on his back as the season went along and they found themselves in, in some trouble and facing adversity. Um, so it, this isn't a slight towards him, but just in general, the upperclassmen as a whole, I think there were some deficiencies in terms of their leadership ability. Like this team, we saw it last season. They had to be a group that bonded together, was super connected, had great chemistry, and, and just played at, at an unbelievably high level on the defensive end, which usually means you know you're communicating really well, you're being very selfless, and it never seemed like that clicked for them this year. That um, they never were able to get back to that same point that they had found at the end of last season. I agree with you. Part of that is certainly that the Big East was better this year, but you can just see it um, to a certain extent. You know the the way that they they carried themselves, the way that they played together, um, sort of the body language on the court. All of that was just different at the end of last year compared to midway through last year when they were struggling. And, you know, really for most of the season, um, it just it just wasn't the same. So we look forward and there's going to be some turnover. Um, we can start with Najee Marshall because obviously he posted the Instagram uh, message that said last year or last game in a Xavier uniform, everybody pull up um, with a crying emoji and a heart. Xavier and him both go on to say, oh, it was the last home home game of the of that year. That's why he posted it. But, Brian, I think you're on the same page as me that neither of us expect Najee Marshall to be back next season. No, and I thought that before the Instagram post, and I sure think it now. I mean, I just saw – I think it's time time for all to move along. And that's what I think is going to happen. Is I mean, there a possibility that Najee could transfer, or is this definitely him moving on with his life and, and going pro or whatever else he's going to do? I mean, it's possible. I I, th- I don't think it's the most likely scenario. I think it's a remote scenario, but it's possible he could transfer. I think generally speaking, you know, his thought is, you know, it's time to not go to school and make money. And bless him for thinking that. Is it unfair um from an outsider perspective or a fan perspective to look at what happened. You know, he posts that message on senior day. Granted, he finished that game against Butler really strong and almost led Xavier back to a win. Um, but there was this weird stretch in the second half, middle of the second half, where he's standing around with his hand on his hips. He's just not moving. There's a loose ball right in front of him that he doesn't go for. It seemed very much like he was kind of in defiance of whatever was going on at that moment. And then he snaps out of it. He plays well at the end of that game. Um, but then again against DePaul, he, he really had some just questionable, seemingly selfish decisions in the second half. We could and, call it what they were. He made losing plays. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can, you can say, well, that's kind of been part of his MO all along. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's unfair to say there was another level of um, aloofness or being disconnected from the group or whatever you want to call it that took place with Najee Marshall in those final games. Is that fair, or do you think it's reading way too much into it? I mean, I can't, I can't get inside Najee Marshall's head. I'll say the Butler game was bizarre. Like, he didn't play for 25 minutes and then was the best player in the country for 15 or for 14 minutes and 57 seconds. And then he was the worst player in the country for the final three. Um, so, but it's tough for me to say it was Najee, his head being somewhere else. I, I just don't know. And I think it would be unfair for me to speculate on that. 
But it is fair to look at everything for what it is with him and say, is Najee Marshall as talented as he is, someone who really helps you win a lot of basketball games when he's your best player? And it's fair to ask that question. Yeah, and I think that's kind of you know what I was getting at with my last point is just that 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 became a legitimate thing. You know, last year when those guys are trying to find a new role, just everything's changing around them, and you lose Trayvon Blewett, J.P. Makira, leaders of your program. It's understandable to go through a transition, but this year there wasn't really an excuse, and the transition should have already have taken place, and and they just they never quite stepped up in that way, and it, it just doesn't seem like it's worked. Um, and again, normally this isn't something that, you know, I'd really think it is something we'd talk about on this podcast, but with the way social media is going, um, in this stuff and the fact that Najee did post the Instagram post, do you have any comments on Alan Ragland, whoever that is, that is, is posting about, um, Travis Steele and Najee and, and that relationship? My guess is it probably isn't so much coming from Najee. Um, every I don't want to say every person that that that's unfair. You you talk to college coaches, they'll tell you like no one's happy or someone close to a kid is never going to be happy. And it's because people see what they want to see. And I don't think like Najee's going to this guy, Alan Ragland, whoever the heck he is and being like, you know, Steele's doing this Steele's owe me. I, I don't believe that because that's just typically not what happens. It's, you know, this guy probably talking to Najee and being like, coach is holding you back. And Najee saying, yeah, yeah, yes. Because it's just easier that way than just being in a debate with someone. Right. And you get a lot of that, whether it's parents. I mean, like if everyone thinks Trayvon Blewett's parents were always happy, you got another thing coming to you. He just didn't post it on Twitter. And, you know. Something tells me two Holloway's dad wasn't always happy and JP McCure's dad wasn't always happy. Sean O'Mara's dad certainly wasn't always happy, but they just didn't put it on Twitter. This guy feels like he could put it on Twitter. So I think it more gets made out of it than what it is. And I don't think that's as much on the player as it is on the adult. And typically, you know, 95% of the time it's the adult who's more screwed up than the kid. Yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. And I also think, as you pointed out, this is something that happens all the time across the sport, not just this sport, but all of them. And the reason for it, you know, you can look at it and say parents are crazy, and they are, and the adults need to be adults and step up, and they do. At the same time, I think everyone who has children probably know much better than you and I that uh, it's hard to sometimes be rational when it comes to your own kid. And in this case, you're talking about um, – there's a lot riding on it for some of these people, whether that mm -hmm. is just a, a college scholarship um, or whether it maybe is professional money and getting the entire family out of a bad situation. There is a lot riding on it for these kids and their families. And uh, sometimes it's not even family, you know, it's former coaches. It's all types of people who have their own opinions of the situation. They're worried about one specific guy out of 13 and the coaches worried about the entire good of everyone. And so obviously those are going to be conflicting interests a lot of the time. So, and sometimes uh, people aren't handling it, handling it the right way and they are crazy. Other times um, it's all kind of understandable. Uh, who knows where this one falls exactly, but I, I would tend to agree with you. That's probably not a lot to read into at the same time. 
I think it's probably fair to question the the relationship between Najee Marshall and Xavier's basketball program right now in terms of him coming back. I don't think that's going to happen either. So uh, yeah, I mean, I will say I've heard you know Xavier did all their end of the season meetings with the players. Um, those are already complete, and I did hear you know Najee and Travis had a good meeting. With that said, I don't think Najee's coming back. I don't think it was even really discussed in that way. But I do think things are fine between Najee and Travis. Right. I just don't think he's returning to play college basketball for another year. Right. It's not like the guys are never speaking to each other again. It's not like there's some big riff or anything there. Uh, It's just, I think, time for everyone to move on at this point. Um, Paul Scruggs is probably the next guy on that list that people are most interested in. People put his name in the draft last year he pulled it back out as we expected him to he's an older guy as well he played the year at prolific prep before coming to Xavier but where's he at do you think I mean we talked about it on the message board recently but um, is Paul Scruggs ready to move on at this point or is there a good chance that he comes back I think there's a very good chance All, all signs right now seem to indicate that he's coming back now, you never know for sure, and especially with guys being off campus for as long as they're going to be, I think some weird things could happen, and this isn't specific to Paul Scruggs. This is just in general. When you have someone who's going to be away from campus, away from coaches, away from everybody for two, three, four months, who knows what the hell is going to happen? And, you know, so I think things could change with Paul, but I think right now all indications are that he's going to come back for a senior year. And also Paul did go to prolific prep, but it was not a prep school year. It was his fourth year. He's a little bit older as a senior, but it's, it's not like Najee who did five years of high school and was old first grade to begin with. Yeah, true. That's a good point. I I actually forgot that that wasn't a true prep year. It was uh, just actually his fourth year of high school at a prep school. Um, Yeah. Looking at the rest of the team, it, there aren't, really any names that necessarily jump out as oh yeah that guy is going to be gone and and I think it's probably unfair to start speculating about who should or shouldn't transfer based on their um, prospective role on next year's roster with Demir Bishop transferring out already do you think it's safe to say that we might see a a year where you don't get any transfers out it's possible um you know who knows but it's pop I mean here's the thing you look at the roster what is there nine guys right now I mean, everyone, if you take out Najee, I think it's nine. Like, if you're looking at that saying, I don't know if I'm going to play, that's a you problem. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, I think we would both agree that there's a lot of work to be done on the roster still, and we'll talk about the acquisition season, as Coach uh, Hayes likes to put it here <laughs> in a second. But looking at next year's lineup, the the projected starters right now, you, what, what where would you have it? Right now, you know, just as it stands today, I would say Kiki Tandy and Paul Scruggs in the backcourt, Colby Jones on the wing, uh, Jason Carter at the four, Zach Fremantle at the five. Really? So you project Colby Jones will be the freshman that finds his way into the starting lineup as opposed to Dwan Odom potentially sliding in the backcourt with uh, Tandy and Scruggs? Yes. It's a harder role to fill right away as a freshman. And they're, you know, I think both Paul and Kiki are, you know, while they're not true point guards, they're serviceable ball handlers. Whereas, show me the other wing. Yeah, I mean, you're basically sliding Paul Scruggs down to the three at that point. Yeah. And, uh, so which, I which just is think fine it's, defensively. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I, I get your point. You don't have a true wing on this roster aside from Colby Jones and C.J. Wilcher, essentially. And it would seem Colby Jones is probably the more college ready, especially defensively. Yeah. And and here's the thing, like people are going to look at it like, oh, they need shooting. They need shooting. And that that's very true. But Paul Scruggs has now shot, I think, 36 and 37 percent the last two years from three. Yeah. Tandy is going to be a plus 35 percent shooter. Minimum. Yeah. Minimum. Uh, Fremantle, it's going, you're going to have to guard him from three. Same with Carter. Because, uh, Rick, you might know it better than me. I think Carter's three-point shooting in league was around 33-34. Yeah, I, I don't have the exact uh, number in front of me. I can look it up here in a second, but it's probably not that not that big of a deal. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, your point is well taken, that the roster will look different. And, and more so than actually knocking down threes, which will be important, you know, it, it, that's going to improve for for this roster, definitely. Um, but I think the bigger thing that they need to solve is the IQ on the offensive end and the feel. And I think they're moving in the right direction. I think Colby Jones is a huge upgrade in, in that regard. I, that's my favorite part about him. I think he really knows how to play. I think he makes winning plays. I think Jason Carter will be a lot more comfortable with the guys he's out there with next year. And then... Um, you know, I think both Fremantle and Tandy will take a step in, in the right direction in terms of their decision-making mm -hmm. and feel. Yeah, I mean, it's all three freshmen are good feel guys, good decision-making guys. Carter's fine. He's not great, but he's fine in that regard. Fremantle's okay, but he's going to play center. You don't really care. Tandy, if he can just be average, that'll be good. By the way, I'm, I just looked it up. Carter was 14 of 43 for 32.6% in league shooting threes. Now, obviously that's a very small sample size, but he you're going to have to guard. Yeah. But he also finished off the, the year hitting nine of 21 in, in February and March. So he, yeah, he was like, definitely better down the stretch shooting about 43%. Yeah. You're going to have to guard him. You're going to. So, um, and that, that just creates space that this team just didn't have. Um, when you're playing Carter at the three, a decent amount of time, Najee at the two, Paul at the one, like there's just not a lot. You're running into each other. Like defenses are laughing at you. Well, and I think a, a big part of it was, you know, people, a lot of people were talking about, oh, you need to run more. Where's the offense? They were just really limited in what they could run because teams wouldn't guard actions. When you yeah. can just step up and sag off in the lane and say, I dare you to make that shot. What action is going to work? What off-ball screen do you want to run? What cut do you think is going to free somebody up when the defense is just sticking their feet in the lane and saying, go ahead and take that shot? I mean, it, as much as I get where people are coming from that you wanted to see better offense, you wanted to see them run more, you just get really limited when the defense is essentially saying, make that wide-open shot and you can't do it. The game becomes really simple. There's not much you can do. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like, all you can do is get open shots. And so much of the time, Xavier got open shots. And some of that was like, I think one play that sums up the season was against Providence. Uh, Xavier's down by one. They fight all the way, get down by one. They A perfect entry pass to Tyreek Jones. Perfect. Leads him right to the rim. And some, he, somehow he airballed a two-footer. And he just didn't airball a two-footer. He missed it by three feet. And I think t Providence came down, hit a two or hit a three, and, and Xavier never got closer. But it's like, okay, you got a wide-open layup. You're not going to do better than that. Yeah, exactly right. Um, 
so let's look at the acquisition season as we go forward. It's become a huge part of, of college basketball, and it really has been for a long time. But now we have the transfer portal. We have fancy names for it. It, it feels more official. Um, Brian, I want to go a little more macro here in general with to start out. Because of the situation they found themselves in, particularly on the offensive end the last few years, what qualities do you think the coaching staff should be prioritizing to make sure they don't end up in a similar situation again? In terms of, we just talking grad transfers or transfers or what? Everything. I mean, everything from grad transfers to transfers to even looking at potential high school prospects. And granted, I don't think there's probably a lot in terms of 2020 guys that they could add to to the roster at this point. But even down the line, when they look at 2021 guys, just from a general perspective, what are the types of qualities that'll keep them from being in a situation where you know you can't score and teams just aren't guarding you? Aside from just shooting. Um. I think one thing Travis is especially focused on is guys who can pass. Um, another problem with Xavier shooting is their passing was really bad. So you would have passes that aren't aren't on time and on target, which causes a delay in being able to get the shot off, and you're never really in rhythm, and it's not comfortable. And that those are things that especially Dewan Odom and especially Colby Jones do really well. So I, I think that's going to be a focus. I think just feel – Feel and understanding of the game is going to be a focus. And then, you know, I think right now if you ask Travis, he'll, he'll say three things. I'm looking for toughness, I'm looking for feel, and I'm looking for shooting. And you need to have t- two of the three. Yep. And I think that's how they're going to try to build the roster going forward. Now, ideally, you want all three, but, you know, not everyone's going to have that. So, but you want to get guys with two of the three, with basketball IQ, ability to make shots, and toughness. We had a conversation on the uh, message board at musketeerreport.com recently about s- someone asked us the question of, you know, what what do you think makes up a high IQ player and a player with good feel? Um, and I thought that was a pretty good thread, the conversation that was going on there. And I think, you know, like, for instance, with Najee Marshall, he's a good example to me of a guy like when I watched him that spring when he blew up of his junior year in AAU. I saw a guy who could pass there. He was making passes in terms of his vision. Like he'd, he'd make a play off the dribble and he'd throw a crazy like no look pass or a one handed pass across court. Mm-hmm. And we still saw him do that at Xavier. He could still make those passes, meaning he had the ability because of you know his control of the ball um, and just his his talent that he could make those plays still. And he'd see those plays sometimes. But the difference between him being a guy who could make a, a, a special pass because of his talent and a guy with good feel was he couldn't seem to create off the dribble and, 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 and make his teammates better. Meaning, like, he couldn't get into the lane as he's breaking this guy down and also feel what's going on around him with his teammates to where someone else was going to benefit from that play. It seemed like it was either he was getting into the lane making a play for Najee or you know, he happened to make that special pass once in a while. But it wasn't a constant thing of he knew where everyone was, he knew how to make everyone else better, and he was reading the defense well. He oftentimes over-dribbled, got himself into trouble, um, and just made too many turnovers or took too many bad shots. And I think that's the difference between, you know, a guy just with talent and some skills on the offensive end versus a guy with a great feel or a high IQ on the offensive end. Yeah, I mean, he was, he's a, he was a one-read quarterback. Exactly right. You know, if option A wasn't there, what does a quarterback do who's only making one read? He's going to go to option A, option A is taken away, then he's going to run. That's kind of what Najee did. 
Like, all right, I'm coming off the ball screen. If the guy who I think is going to be open is open, I'm going to make a really good pass to him. But if he's not, I'm just putting my head down and going right to the rim. And that, and or that, he'd panic and just throw it to the throw it to the other team. Yep. And I think that's the uh, something that you know I've kind of as I've continued to do this something that I've noted um, where I've been fooled occasionally by kids, and I think you know well that guy's going to help them on offense because he can pass. And in reality, that's not really how it worked out with a guy like Najee. So you can be fooled with this stuff sometimes, but I think you know the staff probably had a better feel and knew that hey, he's he's not exactly a high IQ or feel guy all along than I did. I I, I was a little bit confused on the, some of the passes I saw him make um, during that AAU season. I thought you know he would be he would give you more as a team player than he actually did. Um, Brian, what do you think is the biggest position of need right now for Xavier as they look at the the grad transfer and transfer market? I think it's clear it's on the wing. Um, yeah, they just don't have many wings, and they certainly have no wings with experience. So, you know, you want to get someone who's in. I know people don't want to hear this, but you know, like I I know they're involved with the kid Artino or whatever from UNLV. Like, and people say, oh, he averaged seven points at UNLV. Well, yeah, but if he shoots 35% and makes one and a half, two threes a game, that's all they want out of that spot this year. Um, so th- I think I think a wing who's a shooter, now, of course, you want him to have some size and be able to guard, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. You're not always going to get perfect players in the transfer portal. And let's be honest, this you know, like Seth Towns is deciding between Duke and Ohio State. He hasn't played a game of basketball in two years. I think that's something that the staff has probably figured out over the last two years is, you know, the first season, Steel brings in three guys that you're expecting to make an immediate impact, and certainly Zach Hankins did so. But um, Wellich and Castlin just weren't really quite up to snuff. And then this year – um, kind of a similar situation where you, it doesn't seem like it's going to you're going to be able to rely on the grad transfer market to find impact guys that are going to help you right away. Now, as you mentioned, can they find a shooter who can maybe make you one and a half threes per game? Uh, that's possible. At the same time, I think it's fair for fans to be skeptical and say, okay, great, well, Ryan Wellage could do that, but at the same time, he was a net negative. I mean, he just couldn't play at the Big East level. Um, and so I'd be concerned about that if I were a fan as well. The, the, the biggest position of need is certainly on the wing. Brian, do you? L- let me ask you about the grad transfer versus regular transfers real quick. Do you expect it to be open transfer season, meaning anyone will be eligible to play right away, or do you think there's still something to be worked out there? Um, you would have asked me this like a week ago. I would have said, yeah, everybody's going to be eligible. Um, But with uh, Corona, you just don't know if they're going to be able to vote on it. Because when they vote on it, it's going to pass that everyone that you're going to have a one time transfer exception. Like that's going to happen. I've talked to multiple ADs. Everyone knows what's going to happen. But I just don't know if in the middle of a of a shutdown, if that vote is still going to take place. And. I mean, regardless of whether that happens or not, how active do we expect Xavier to be? I mean, how many new faces do you think we'll see for next season? You, you, they've got three recruits coming in. How many do you think they'll add to that? I think they would like to add two pieces. I do. Um, that'd be my guess is try to add two more. And, you know, Travis doesn't really want his roster above 10, 11 guys. 
Right. And as we mentioned, they'll be at nine now, assuming Scrug stayed and, and Marshall left. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it'll be two pieces to the puzzle. I couldn't tell you which two. I mean, you know, they're they're obviously talking to every transfer who can breathe and walk right now. And most of that's just due to, like, they literally have nothing else that they can do. But I think that's where it stands is they want, they want you know, two pieces, one of which can really, really shoot it and then kind of see what else you can get. One thing we've been saying since the start of the Travis Steele era is that they're always going to be active during this time of year. And you picture one Travis Steele in quarantine, and you can only imagine what is taking place in terms of his research, his call logs, his text logs. I mean, it just has to be an absolute war zone right now and wherever he's holed up at. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be whoever's got to deal with him right now. That's going to be completely miserable. God bless Amanda. Yeah, um, she deserves combat pay right now. <laughs> I feel feel really bad for her and the rest of the family. Um, Brian, let's take a look at the 2021 recruiting class. You wrote a really good primer on musketeerreport.com. I'm not going to ask you to rehash you know, the whole list, which really laid out where they're at at each position, who the who the top targets are. If people want to read that, they should definitely go check it out because it gives you a, a good feel for where things stand right now. Just give me this. Around this time of year, and, and this year is going to definitely be different because of the coronavirus, but it also makes it more interesting in certain aspects because – you know, certain guys won't have the opportunity to blow up that they otherwise might have, um, and and other schools that were a little bit behind the eight ball in 2021 won't necessarily get the time to catch up during the spring and and early in the summer. Who are the two biggest names right now from your recent post that Xavier fans should be watching? Because it seems like this time of year, there's always a couple of guys that were saying. If there's an early commitment that's going to happen, it might be one of these couple of guys, and, and oftentimes that's worked out. Who who are Give me two names that, that could be in that group right now. Um, you know, I would look at Pierre Brooks out of Michigan and then Logan Duncombe from Moeller. Um, Logan really wants to get this over with. It's just he would really like to visit Indiana and potentially even Stanford before he does it. But right now he can't do that. So I'll be interested to see when Logan – like when like right now Logan Duncombe has a visit set up for Indiana on April 17th. I don't think there's anyone on the planet that thinks that visit's actually going to happen. And if it starts to become very obvious that there's going to be no visits until June or July, is Logan going to want to wait that long? You know, honestly, I don't know. So I think it could, in essence, come down to Xavier in Ohio State. Now, he's been to Indiana, but I, I have a hard time seeing that kid committing to a school that he doesn't make an official visit to. I really do. So it could come down to, to Xavier and Ohio State on that one if if it just the timing, you know, kind of breaks in Xavier's favor in terms of visits. Uh, and then, go ahead, sorry. Then Pierre Brooks, you know, the wing from Michigan. He's made an official visit to Xavier. He's been to Michigan and Michigan State several times. It's kind of those three schools right now. And again, is I don't know how much longer Pierre wants this to go. And if he can't visit anywhere else, you know, he's talking about Arizona State and and uh, I think Cal he mentioned, but like he's not going to be able to get out there anytime in the near future. So, you know, is he just going to sit there with, you know, you know, twiddling his thumbs at his house and be like, all right, I can hold on and waste my time and everyone else's time or just make my decision. 
I mean, it's kind of weird to talk about, but Travis Steele really values being engaged in the recruiting scene. He likes to know all these names ahead of time personally. Um, his staff is really on top of it. They're really organized when it comes to recruiting and future classes and who they're targeting and uh, working guys early. Is coronavirus weirdly possibly an advantage for Xavier in the sense that not only are they super organized and they really value being on top of this stuff, but they also got their 2020 class locked up pretty early, so they had a pretty good head start on a lot of these 2021 guys like Duncan. Yeah, I think with some kids it's certainly an advantage. With others, like say like a Trey Kaufman, I think it's not. But uh, because, you know, that kid's been to Indiana a million times. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely, I think – they're they're a school that does a lot of work during the high school season. The head coach does a lot of work during the high school season. Not not a lot of, not a lot do that. So yeah, I mean, I do think it could be a positive. We we just don't know. We don't you know this has never happened before. But I don't think it's absurd to think this is could be a, a big positive for Xavier on the recruiting trail. What do you think the working number is right now for the twenty twenty one class? Are we talking about three guys, four guys? If I had to guess, I'd guess four. But it'd be three to four. Okay. And again, uh, Brian wrote a really good primer for the 2021 class detailing where Xavier stands with each position, who the top guys are, who some of the other options are. Uh, be sure to check that out, musketeerreport.com right now. Um, Brian, let's wrap the podcast up with this. A lot of people have asked me since the season ended, I think you know, every time I've made a, a radio appearance or we've done a, a podcast with Local 12, the question has come up, about Travis Steele and um, the job he's done, what his future holds, you know, how warm is his seat getting, how does Xavier feel about him, how should they feel about him. And I think that, you know, the end of this season, whether you thought they were going to make the tournament as a play-in game or they were going to miss it, I don't think that matters much to Xavier fans or really the administration in terms of how they felt about this year. It, it, it's about the same, whether you're the play-in game or you're the, the last team, you're the last team left out of the tournament. But, you know, give me your thoughts on the job that this staff has done through two years, how warm that seat is getting. I mean, do, a lot of people are saying, you know, you couldn't possibly miss the tournament three years in a row. And whether that inc this year counts as missing the tournament or not, I think the, the sentiment is still the same, that a lot of fans feel like if Xavier misses the tournament next year, this coaching staff is really in trouble. Um, I tend to believe that's not exactly the case. Where do you think things stand? Yeah, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think there's a lot of people. He has the way he's running his program in terms of who he's recruiting, how he's doing things. The just everything he's trying to get done is what he was asked to do. And people know he came into a situation where, in essence, he didn't have a senior and he didn't have a freshman. That's a tough situation to walk into. So, and that's not a one year, it's not a two year fix. He's going to start getting his roster year three into year four. And if you're still missing the tournament and not playing well and not executing years three and four, then yeah, there could be a problem. But he's got, I think, three, four years left on his contract. There's absolutely no pressure from that perspective. Um, it's interesting. Everyone, you know, looks at things. And to me, like the number one thing, what, what did we always say this year about Xavier is they played hard. 
And, you know, outside of Najee Marshall for like, you know, 20 minutes against Butler, they played hard, played hard as hell. And as a coach, if you could get your players to play hard, that that's half the battle now. And they did that. So I think a lot of people are going to look and say, hey, he's still got their attention. He's got them motivated. There were just holes on the roster. Now, if things continue, then yeah, you can take a look at it. But like Xavier fans after two years, you know, like Sean Miller was a one miracle run in the A-10 tournament away from the same situation in year two. Um, you know, Chris Mack inherited the arguably the most talented team Xavier's had. And then he went through a little two-year run. I mean, it happens. And, you know, Xavier fans act like it didn't happen, but it absolutely happened. Well, I mean, in, in that first year, Mac, that team kind of backdoored their way into the tournament and then, you know, made a little bit of a run once they got in there that probably bought him some time because otherwise he would have been in a th- like you, a three-year rut, potentially, yeah. um, that people would have really been concerned about because he started with some talent. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think I'm in a similar spot as you're at. At the same time, uh, going back to what you said about the team playing hard, I would agree with that. I think this team did play hard, and I think that is definitely um, a point in the coaching staff's favor. At the same time, I think the concern from the fan base, or at least some of them, would to play devil's advocate would be, okay, they were tough and, and physical, but at the same time, it didn't seem like they were always engaged, listening to the game plan, locking in on what the coaching staff was doing, or improving in the areas that they were being asked to improve in terms of their decision making. Um, you know, even even going back to like the ball screen situation at the end of the Butler game, where you have two of your most experienced players just completely blowing a ball screen coverage. Now, I put that a lot more on the players than I do the coaching staff, if we're being honest. But at, at the same time, I, I get. The, the questions coming from the fan base of saying, okay, are these guys tuning the staff out? Like, that is something that this staff has to answer for. Can they get their best players to be to be locked in, to be engaged, and, and to be in tune with the game plan and bought in? Um, I'm not saying this group wasn't. I think they had some limitations, but it has raised the question now after the first two years. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say there's no questions. I mean, there, there's definitely questions, but I mean, I think realistic limitations got in the way of a lot of that as as one coach told me you know um you know one college coach he told me culture is personnel driven if you have the right personnel you're gonna have the right culture if you got the wrong personnel you're gonna have the wrong culture and culture it's an overused term and i'm not necessarily wide ranging but if you have i i don't know how people want to coach decision making I have no earthly idea how people think you just coach that. So if you don't have great decision makers on the court, you can show them all the film in the world. You can't play for them. Yeah, I mean, I think think some of that is innate. I think some of that is the player has to be adaptable and be able to learn some of that stuff. At the same time, like, I don't know if I would call it decision making, but I do think you know, there are certain coaches that are much better at putting their guys in positions to 
make those decisions on their own, learn from their mistakes, get better at them. And then there are other coaches who micromanage everything, don't give the, their players that opportunity, and you really never see them progress, right? Like, I think that's sort of the, the Chris Mack versus the Mick Cronin model in a lot of ways, um, specifically at, like, the guard positions. I think Mick was really shelter his point guard and just make sure he doesn't turn the ball over as much as possible, whereas Chris Mack was like, I'm going to let my guy go out and turn the ball over five, six times in, in a game for the first half of the year so he gets better and, and learns to make these decisions. And, and by the end of the year in the tournament, he's going to make big plays for us. Um, I tend to think Travis Steele is probably on the other side of that though. Like I, I totally think he is willing to give his, his players the leash and totally willing to let them develop. Um, I think that'll be a strength of this staff as they go on. It just so happened. It didn't work out with this group of players. Yeah. And again, like I just think that was a fundamental limitation of the personnel. I think that's right, uh, but at the same time, the staff will have to prove that going forward by yeah. uh, recruiting their own guys and proving they can they can improve on that end. Like you know, I see a lot of people that question the system, the scheme, particularly on the offensive end. Like I have zero concerns about whether or not this staff can coach offense. In fact, a lot of times this year, I was finding myself wondering how they're continually getting open layups when there are ten toes in the paint on the defensive side. Yeah, I mean, I thought for the most part, most games, Xavier actually got easier shots than their opponent did. Exactly. No, I mean, they just didn't make them. But yeah. that doesn't, that, to me, that doesn't uh, equate to bad coaching. Like, if you're finding ways yeah. to still get layups when everyone knows you can't make an open shot, like, there's some scheming going on now there. Like, and not to mention, Travis Steele had a huge role um, in the offense that Trayvon Blewett and J.P. McCure and all those guys thrived in a couple years ago when they earned a one seed. So I don't think he forgot how to uh, run an offense. I think they'll be just fine in that regard. Um, but at the same time, they'll have to get their own players in and prove they can do that. Yeah, and it's fair to question. Questioning is fine. Like, you know, we don't live in a dictatorship. You know, you, you can question. But trying trying to fire is stupid. Yeah, and I mean, there's just the lack of context and everything else that we see constantly. But I mean, that you know, it's I think a lot of times that probably is a, a louder minority than we realize, um, and there are a lot of uh, more moderate people who sort of understand the situation, and hopefully, they in, enjoyed our uh, talking about it on here. There is a lot more conversation going on right now at MusketeerReport.com on the premium message board. I think everyone is holed up and quarantined and missing college basketball right now, so there is a lot of good conversation. Uh, Snow, is there anything else that we didn't get to that you think we should talk about? I, I, w I would say we wrapped it up. All right. Zipped it up, some might say. So uh, with that oh, being look said, at that. yeah, how about that? For our guy, Dan, who wasn't able to join us for this one and the legend, Brian Snow, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.